According to Pew Research, eight in 10 white evangelicals in the US say that they will vote for Donald Trump in a couple of weeks as we vote. One week, right? Oh my gosh, one, in, in one and a half weeks away. And this is the reality that we are engaging in our series uh, of live discussions here on Sundays, Who is Jesus When Most American Christians Back Trump? So let me once again uh, reintroduce my co-pastor, Kyle Hanawalt, as we turn toward today's discussion. Kyle, hi, and uh, what, what are we doing with this series and why are we doing it? Hey, Vince, good to see you virtually this Sunday morning. Um, so we're, we're stepping into this series as we're just over a week away from this election. Um, I can't help but think about uh, on Discord this uh, last week, we passed around a conversation in an article uh, from 538 looking at Pew's latest research on millennials and religious affiliation and finding that not only are fewer and fewer millennials uh, affiliating themselves uh, as a Christian or a person of faith, um, but that number isn't changing as they get older. They're staying away. And that is actually only more true for those that don't self-identify as Republican. Um, and as I look at those numbers and I talk to the people around me, I don't actually think that is about what I've experienced with Jesus. I think it's about the narrative of where religious affiliation, specifically identifying yourself as a Christian uh, is in our culture. And so we're having this conversation for two reasons. First is to shift the narrative, which is to say for me and for us as a community, Jesus is the biggest reason we care about immigration reform. Jesus is the biggest reason that we care about addressing systemic racism. Jesus is the biggest reason that believing that healthcare should be accessible to all. That for us, the things that feel innately good and true and needed in our world are not in contrast to what a, a Jesus-centered life would look like, but actually are born out and found alive in that. And, and letting that narrative be seen for so many of us that would long to find the help and resources of Jesus, but sometimes feel like that is so immersed in a world and a culture that feels abrasive to our soul. And secondarily, we're doing this series because we need Jesus right now. With nine days left, I can feel my experiences of anxiety spike uh, as I read news stories. I can feel the sense of hopelessness at times drop in as I uh, drive past a, a Trump rally last night in um, uh, Skokie. Like there's this experience for me where I need the experience of a living God who is actively with me, giving me a vision for a hopeful future, filling me with a sense of purpose and guidance. And if we in this space step back from engagement and faith because of the way that the religious right has co-opted that narrative, not only are we not able to present a wider narrative, but we deprive ourselves from the resources that a living God offers us to get through a daily hopeful life. Um, and so to bring us into the next part of that conversation, I'll pass it back to you, Vince. Yeah, thank you, Kyle. And uh, this has been really great. If you've missed any of the uh, live discussions we've had, each has had a really uh, unique jumping off point. And so we encourage you to go back and check those on our YouTube channel or uh, on the podcast. Uh, they've been really great. And uh, we're especially grateful to everybody who's helped steer them in the moment uh, by like commenting and adding your questions and that sort of thing. We've gotten some really, really cool things that weren't planned uh, as a result of those discussions. It's all because people asked good questions. Uh, well, today, our jumping off point uh, in responding to who is Jesus, uh, is Jesus the outsider? Who does Jesus identify with most particularly societal outsiders, not societal insiders? And this discussion today is going to be extra special. First off, uh, one of our good friends here at Brownland Church, Val Buchanan, is going to be our interviewer today. Hi, Val. 
Hey everyone. Glad, Glad to be you're here. with us, Val. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Val is the Assistant Director of Leadership Development and Community Engagement at Northwestern University. She is a personal friend of Kyle's and of mine, and she's one of our favorite conversation partners for talking about the intersection of the tradition of Jesus and equity and justice work in 21st century America. So we're thrilled that she is, uh, is going to be our interviewer today. And the second reason that today's discussion is going to be an extra special one is that Val will be interviewing a good friend of hers and a new friend of ours, Sammy DePasquale who is joining us from El Paso, Texas this morning. Hi, Sammy. Hi, Vince. Hey, everyone. Glad you're with us, Sammy. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm not sure you have the, um, the award for farthest joiner this morning, but we still like you. We're still really glad that you're joining us from Texas. <laughs> Sammy runs uh, Abara Borderland Connections, which resources migrant shelters and facility, uh, facilitates opportunities for education, for service, and for loving across divides on the US-Mexico border. Uh, they're in El Paso and in Ciudad Juarez on the other side. Uh, this is work that teaches him regularly about the Jesus who identifies with outsiders. And as we'll hear in a minute, uh, Sammy's personal story growing up has given him, I think, unique eyes to see Jesus as the God who identifies with outsiders and not with insiders. Uh, we want to, as always, encourage you to offer your comments and you to offer your questions. As we were saying before, Ed is gonna be watching the chat for us today uh, to make sure that those get kind of noted and captured. And that has been one of the most fun things about these discussions is kind of seeing where you guys wanna steer things. But especially today, I wanna to encourage you to use the chat to offer your questions because we have someone with us this morning, Sammy, who is in closer proximity to the human suffering that's happening on the border right now than any of us in our day to day. And uh, with the news coming out this week about so many families still separated right now on the border, um, like I just feel a, a renewed need to like learn, educate myself and, and to find hope. And so uh, if you have questions about what's happening on the border, uh, today is a real chance for you to ask those uh, because we have somebody who can offer some personal experience to help us uh, and who, who knows more about this than we do. Uh, at the end of the, our time today, we will pose as many of the questions as we can from you all uh, to Sammy uh, and still not stay here all day. So <laughs> with that, I'm gonna hand it uh, over to Val and to Sammy. Val, take it away. Awesome. Thanks, Vince. Um... Just as an aside, I could listen to Kezia sing all day. Oh, and you too, Vince, you too. I love listening to you sing too. Um, Sammy, it is so good to speak to you this morning and to introduce you as my friend to new friends that I'm having here in Chicago. So really big shout out to you for, for getting up early or a little early there in the El Paso space. Um, and I, I checked the weather, you know, it's, it's gonna be in the mid eighties today in El Paso, y'all. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I lived in El Paso just for, for, the, for, for about all my junior high and high school years, and my blood definitely thinned out. I don't think it snowed. Maybe one time it snowed the entire time I was there. So I'm missing that weather today as we think about going into quarantine for the winter here in Chicago. Um, and bef Sammy, before I get into asking you a little bit about your own story, I just wanted to give a shout out to your family, Marianne, and your kids. I don't know if they're all sleeping but I wanted to share our picture you sent. Um, maybe Vince, you can put that up. It sounds like you're doing quarantine poker with your family. You know, on occasion, that's what our eight-year like eight-year-old likes the most. Uh huh. Um, is he? Is he? Is he? Does he dominate the poker game? He sometimes does. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, while your family's on the screen there, do you want to quickly introduce us to them? Sure. Um, from left to right, let's see, on the far left there is uh, Alia, who is 15, and then in the hat is Leila, who is 17, a senior in high school, and then Sahira, who's 12, Salim, who is 8, um, and Marianne, my wife, and then that's me. Yeah. And this is last... Last week, we went to Colorado in an RV uh, to see my brother and sister-in-law. And so that's us in the RV. And Salim had, had badgered everyone for a long time till we would play poker with him. And then we ended up right on the edge of those, the fires that are going on. So we ended up having to evacuate halfway through and go to another campsite. So um, I think Colorado's a pretty rough spot right now. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing a picture of your family. Thank you, Vince. Um, so Sammy, you know, we are all shaped by the places that we live. And a lot of us have lived in a lot of different places, but as Vince was e even giving in his intro, when we think about like living in a particular society and a particular perspective and who that society considers outsiders, you have some unique perspectives because of where you grew up. So why don't you give us kind of the, the brief big picture, 10,000 foot view of you're growing up in the spaces that you were in, and then we'll pivot to, to thinking about how those perspectives have, have shaped um, your perspective. Um, yeah, thanks Val, and thank you all. It's great to, to be with you this morning. Um, I lived in Chicago, the Chicago area, Western suburbs in the Wheaton area for, for on and off for eight years probably. So um, I know what you're feeling right now going into winter. Um, that was, that was one of the hardest things for me probably, but yeah, I, my parents are, are originally from the U S my dad is from a little Italian neighborhood in Buffalo, New York. Um, and his, his dad came from uh, Sicily or his grandfather did, but, um, both of his grandparents, his dad is fully Sicilian, but grew up yeah in, in Buffalo, New York, hence De Pasquale, the last name. And then, uh, but my parents, my, my dad and mom had moved to Jordan um, before I was born, the country of Jordan in the Middle East. And so that's where I was born and raised in my first name, Sammy. That's my, my full name. That's an Arab name. Um, and so that's where I was born and that's where my childhood was. And so we spoke English at home, um, but pretty much everywhere else functioned in Arabic and all my friends were were pretty much Arab, mostly Jordanians or Palestinians. And so in school, in church, in the neighborhood, um, and uh, a mix, a mix of Christian and Muslim. And then uh, my, most of my high school years were in Cyprus, a little island, Eastern Mediterranean, um, on the Southern part of Cyprus, which is a Greek and Orthodox, and it's a divided island. Turkey is actually occupying the, the Northern side of the island and is it's sort of annexed, well, it hasn't been officially annexed by Turkey, but it's an occupation by Turkey that's very real. And so a lot of friends in Cyprus had, had been displaced or their families had when Turkey had invaded. Um, so we were in the States in and out um, a, couple, a couple different times, once in second grade in, in uh, Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, once in seventh and eighth grade in Durham, North Carolina. And then my senior year of high school, I ended up in in the Chicago suburbs in Wheaton, Illinois, and ended up graduating from Wheaton North High School. So I did one year there. Then ended up going to Wheaton College for a couple of years, um, was having a pretty rough time uh, there for a number of reasons. And uh, 
some of it just uh, normal angst and, and uh, figuring life out at that time. Some of it real culture shock. Um, it was also my first time in sort of a, a US white evangelical middle-class space. I don't know how you want to layer those things, but that was sort of my first experience and it was a little bit shocking um, uh, for me. And I left I, and I, uh, I studied and, and then sort of volunteered in Egypt for a year and then in India for a year and then sort of a few, few years later ended up back at Wheaton and, and, and graduated from Wheaton, then worked with World Relief and Refugee Resettlement in DuPage County, mostly with the Arabic speakers um, for three years. And that was around the time of 9-11, um, when of course there was a whole lot of feelings um, or a variety of feelings towards, towards Arabs at that time. And one of my main jobs at the beginning was trying to help people find jobs, um, which, which proved to be difficult. Um, in, in that time frame, and then my and then during that time, my wife and I got married, um, Marianne, who you saw in the picture, and she grew up in El Paso. Um, and uh, for family reasons, we moved to El Paso. We thought we'd be here a couple of years. That was in two thousand four, and now we've been here um, sixteen years. And for most of that time, really just uh, embedded in working in community development work in a neighborhood that's about a mile from the border with families who have recently moved to the U.S. from Mexico. Um, and so working with youth and families um, and in community development work. So very hyper local focused, but out of that sort of a vantage point um, and being right, like literally El Paso and Juarez, Ciudad Juarez, our sister city in Mexico, um, are literally right across the river from each other. So it's not like you go 20 miles and you're there. I mean, like, like I could, I, you know, if I wanted to grab a burrito or some lunch, um, you know, in Mexico, I could be there in under 10 minutes. Um, that's how, I mean, it's, it's so close. And so uh, being, living in our, in our neighborhood here, you know, we're very in very close proximity to what's been happening at the border. And so over the last few years, have really been doing more and more to respond, especially when asylum seekers were coming to the border in large numbers. And that's sort of where the work of Abara organization I'm now leading is sort of where that, that how that came about. That was amazing. You just did like a whole life in like three minutes there. That's pretty, pretty <laughs> awesome. So, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna get to like El Paso in a minute and like focus a little bit more in on what's happening now at the border. But I wanna just take the big picture for a second. So you're like the definition of a, a global citizen. You've lived in all of these different spaces. Um, can you talk just a little bit about how you've been shaped by being in all of these different places and the the joys and the conflicts in all of those places and how those societies were themselves kind of working out insider and outsider um you know perspectives how has that shaped you and impacted you yeah i think from earlier early my earliest memories probably of course without being able to really fully recognize it till years and years maybe decades later in some cases um I think in my, you know, I knew my parents were from the U.S., but I hadn't spent much time here. It wasn't like my country. I didn't feel like it was my country. I knew that's where my passport was from, um, but felt fully at home in Jordan. And I think, you know, in my, I had completely absorbed, I think, the pains of, uh, um, of those around me, of my friends, almost as, as my own and thought I was Arab, you know, in a sense, um, growing up. Um, and a lot of my friends um, were Palestinian. And so they had, 
their families had moved to Jordan at some point in the last 20 years at that point, where like from the formation of Israel, if you know much about that, when Israel was formed after World War II, um, out of the pain of the Holocaust and trying to find a homeland for, um, for Jewish people who had been suffering, it's sort of the creation of that homeland in, in what's now Israel really created a whole lot of suffering for other people, um, for the Palestinians. And so Jordan, at the time that I was born and was growing up, was actually more than half Palestinians, um, Palestinians who had left what, was, what is now Israel. And so, and many of, and most of my friends were actually Palestinian. And so I grew up with those stories. I mean, those were my best friends who I was spending the night or a week over at and hearing all of the stories um, and the heartache. And so, uh, um, so when I'd be visiting the U.S. and hear sort of thoughts about Israel and especially sort of within the evangelical community support for the nation of Israel, it was sort of like really strange to me. Because again, I was in Christian settings in Jordan. It wasn't like just a a religious, you know, Muslim Jewish thing, um, which a lot of people I think feel like it is, but this is the, the Christian Arabs feel exactly the same way. They were displaced and they feel the injustice and they're like, wait a sec, our brothers and sisters, you know, followers of Jesus elsewhere are, are supporting these ongoing activities that are um, highly unjust for us as human beings. And, and we're even like followers of um, you know, believing in the same Christ. Uh, so I think, you know, that like that was hugely formative as, as a young person. And then it wasn't until again, like decades later, maybe even here in El Paso, where I started thinking about it and realizing how many sort of border, border zones like then, in, you know, like that I lived on or conflict settings, um, again, like in Cyprus being right there with, uh, um, with sort of a Turkish and Greek um, I mean, a lot of anxiety and hatred, same sort of thing in Cyprus. A lot of my friends had, their parents used to live in the north of the island that was occupied by Turkey and they fled to where they were now and were feeling displaced. A lot of my, a third of my high school in Cyprus were Lebanese who had fled the civil war in Lebanon. And so they were displaced. So I grew up, I was sort of, I mean, I was formed in communities, I think of, of people who were displaced. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's what, like, that's what my gut sort of feels, even if, uh, if, uh, you know, the way I look or, uh, the country that I'm, um, that I represent, um, doesn't feel that way necessarily. Um, but I think, uh, well, I won't, I won't say I'll, I'll stop there and I'll just let you ask more questions. Yeah. So the, co the, the cognitive dissidence that you're talking about, right. Of like you know, trying to like, like Vince and Kyle have been talking about their brain breaking, like thinking about like the cultural Christian vote for Trump and how could that be? Um, you've kind of grown up in a lot of spaces where you were having to like confront what does it mean to follow God and how do people who would say they're following God have such different ideas about what that should be? Um, and that comes back to maybe some of this like the way we're approaching this conversation today, thinking about Jesus as an outsider and like how God really centers the marginalized. So let's let's fast forward and you were plopped into Wheaton College. So this is like your first time of um, being immersed in like a white evangelical space. How did you respond? How did you hold on to your faith? You know, what was that like for you in terms of being confronted all of a sudden in, in being surrounded with that being the mainstream, right? 
Yeah, that was really hard. I think, uh, I mean, I don't know that the words had ever been used, but I think I grew up, especially in Jordan, in a community where following Christ was the out, be, being the outsider, right? So obviously Christians are not, a, are, not, are not the majority in the Middle East and can be discriminated against sometimes greatly. Um, and so it's not a, an easy thing necessarily. I mean, you, you, you're born, usually you're born into a Christian family and sort of remain in that. And it's sometimes it's more of a cultural thing, but there's many, many people with deep faith, but so you're, so following Jesus is not about being powerful and privileged in that setting. Right. And a lot of like the faith that I had experienced, um, for instance, like friends who would come and stay with us in, uh, in Jordan, sometimes fleeing the civil war in Lebanon, who, I mean, the kids would be in, in uh, um, like would have to be like half of the school year, literally in bomb shelters, you know, missing school and all of this stuff. And, uh, and but choosing to, to remain in Lebanon through all of that, because feeling that's, that that's what God wanted them to do. So that's like a, a faith of sacrifice, right? It's not a faith of privilege or, or feeling like it's defending some sort of power. No, it's like choosing to put themselves in a space where they might die. So of course, hitting a suburban uh, context and, and, uh, and, and uh, the, I guess the way I sensed that faith was expressed around me, it seemed like it was about, you know, yeah, it's about comfort, um, about, about protecting, you know, protecting ourselves against uh, some outsiders, but, um, but of course, being in the majority, it sort of, it, I don't know, it just seemed sort of crazy to me. Um, also, it seemed very inhospitable. Um, the middle in the Middle East, everybody's incredibly hospitable and will give you their last bit of food if you if you need a place to crash. I mean, they will like leave there if they have one bed in the home. They would they would let you sleep in the bed, and um, and so that was just just the wealth and 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 prosperity, even of like large homes in the suburb that had empty rooms that then wouldn't let anyone come spend the night, and you know was just really hard <laughs> was really hard for me. Um, and so, and because I think when you're in a position of privilege, you sort of uh, usually, unless the circumstances are unusual, you have to step out, you have to choose to step outside of that position in order to actually to, to see what's going on elsewhere and or experience that. And so if people hadn't, which it seemed like a lot hadn't, then it seemed like, oh, you have this mold of what following Jesus is like that's very much intricately wound up with um, cultural issues and, uh, political issues and all of these things. And it's hard to see clearly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, thank you for that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your, your understanding of Jesus then, as we think about the life of Jesus and the example that you see of how God is embodied on the earth in the life of Jesus, like what are some things that stick out to you in terms of like how Jesus lived that way and kind of like in all the ways that you just described, like embodying a different kind of presence and a different kind of hospitality and love that um, is embracing. Yeah, I, the, yeah, that, I think the life and words and actions of Jesus stand out to me in clear opposition to a lot of what seems to be going on in the church today in the, in the, in the you know, mainstream U.S., let's say, evangelical church, um, in the sense that, I mean, 
then the Jewish people at that time were suffering under empire, Roman empire. So in that sense, they were marginalized. And yet within their context, within the Jewish context, obviously Jewish thinking was dominant. Um, about, and especially thinking about who is in and who is out. And, um, and Jesus was constantly questioning that within his own community. He so rarely, if ever, really criticized those outside of his community saying, look at them, they're not doing things the way they're supposed to. He criticized people within his community that were corrupting what he felt like was, uh, was, was you know, truly following the way, of, you know, the way of God. And so, um, um, I mean, even just in the way he chose to, I, I think of like the, the interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, and I, I'm, um, I think the thing that stands out to me the most with that story is why would Jesus even be there? Um, as I, as I, as I like have heard and learned um, that most Jewish people would avoid going through Samaria. It would be, it was the most direct route um, to get from Galilee to Jerusalem and back. But most Jews, and especially the highly religious ones, would go a very long route to avoid going through there because this these were the, in a sense, some of the enemies, right? Some of the outsiders, some of the dirty people, some of the like most scorned uh, individuals in in Jewish culture. Well, Jesus chose to walk through their uh, country, and it's not like you know now we could get in a car and drive through and hopefully miss anything we don't want to engage with but they're walking, right? So they like have to engage. And then they're at the, he put it, you know, they're putting themselves at the mercy of, of you want to say the others, the outsiders. And so um, Jesus is there, you know, modeling for his disciples is what you do. You walk into, some, you know, you walk into places that are not comfortable to you and that are outside. And maybe the ones that the, the culture and the religious leaders have told you don't, that you shouldn't engage in. And that's what Jesus was doing. Um, and then I think about, I mean, the, probably the most well-known parable, right? The, um, the good Samaritan and, uh, and of course that's even in response to what are the most important commands and it ends up love God, love our neighbor. And, you know, it says that in two places and once it says love God, and it almost seems like a separate thing, loving God and loving neighbor. But in another spot, it says, you know, loving your neighbor is like, he's like, the first command is love God with everything you have. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not like this separation. It's like, in somehow in loving our neighbor, we are loving God as well. And, and when he's asked, who's my neighbor, of course, probably the hope is that he's talking about, you know, my neighbor who looks like me and thinks like me and talks like me and has the same religious views as me. But no, he chooses again, a Samaritan who, um, is not at all who the Jews are hoping that he would choose, you know, like maybe it's the, like that could have been the, the good Muslim or the good asylum seeker or the good ISIS, like uh, member of ISIS or something, you know, someone really scorned, hated, feared. There'd been a lot of skirmishes, even like, um, uh, yeah, there'd been a lot of negative activity towards each other, even in that recent time, in the time of Jesus. And um, that's who he chose to say was the hero right in the story it was like, who was the good person? Who was the, the per, who was the neighbor? Well, the good neighbor was an outsider, not a Jewish person, which would have been like crazy um, for the people hearing it. And so I think constantly Jesus is, is choosing that and walking in that way, both in, again, like in those two examples, in the way he lived 
and then in the examples he used. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'd like to turn our attention now to like what's currently happening um, on the border where you are, Sammy, things you have witnessed with your own eyes. I know even in preparing for this conversation, we know that there's been a there's been a crisis uh, on the border for a long time, predating the Trump administration. Um, but can you describe for us a little bit about the migrant situation that's happening now? Um, what has it been like um, in 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 these in these recent times? Yeah, it's 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 complicated to explain. I mean, there's simplistic answers, but there's it's it's complicated. So I'll try to give a real super quick overview of what things have looked like, say, for the last twenty years. Um, so asylum seekers, as you may or may not know, are those who set foot on U.S. soil and say, I am scared to go back to my country for fear of my life. And then there has been for the, for the last decades, sort of a typical way that like what, what would happen once you did that. And basically you would have what you're called a credible, what's called a credible fear interview, which would be the first step just that would determining, okay, this is the reason, this is what you're claiming that you are scared to go back to your country. If you pass that, then you've had the right to go through immigration hearings to really dig into it more and uh, discover, you know, according to the court system, if they feel like that's actually, uh, um, if that's actually true or not. And that's usually a series of at least three court hearings, which, you know, in an ideal situation could happen in a matter of days or weeks. Um, but now, you know, and oftentimes has taken months or years. Um, and so what was happening once uh, we had, well, historically, we haven't had a ton of asylum seekers hitting the border. And so, uh, you know, once those numbers really started increasing, maybe five years ago, it put a lot of pressure on the system because the system wasn't, hadn't been designed to really handle that, those, that many people sort of seeking that avenue of assistance. Um, and so a few years ago, um, what would happen is you'd have that credible fear interview. And then if you passed it, and if it was a family, if it was like a mother and child or parents with kids, then they would get an ankle monitor, like a tracking monitor. They'd be like, okay, you have this chance to pursue, you know, to prove your case. Um, and you have friends and, you know, you have like a, a, a cousin in Chicago. So you go live in Chicago and we're going to track you with this monitor and you have to check in regularly. And then you're going to have your, we'll, we'll have your court hearings in Chicago and you'll live with that person that provides you shelter and a place to live and, and, money for you so you don't have to work while you're in this process. It's like a sponsor family, sponsor person. Um, and so they would be released from detention here on the border to go to Chicago. Um, and they would have just been released onto the streets, but there was like at first dozens, then hundreds, then, then even like up to a thousand a day at a certain point that were released into El Paso. You can imagine what that would have been like downtown or at the Greyhound station. And, uh, and this would be, and most of the, this is again, like think, think 23 year old mom with a three year old and uh, an infant in her arms or a mom and dad with a seven year old, a four year old, a two year old. Um, this isn't, I mean, the single young men are very rarely released from custody. Um, so as we know, the current administration from the very beginning sort of began the whole, you know, began, um, sort of, uh, well, Trump began his, 
he chose to announce his candidacy by 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 trying to scare people about the outsider, about those who are who are coming to the U.S. Um, and that they're scary, that they're criminals, um, and that is not the reality. That for the most part of what we see on the ground, even when you talk to border patrol of the the numbers that are coming, they'd be like, you know, 95, 98, 99 percent are just family members looking for um, safety and security. So what happened, you know, so there was all these layers that were that, that in an attempt to stop people coming through. Um, and this, you know, you've, you've heard many of this, right? So there was child separation policy for a while, which was, um, which was really just the zero tolerance, just saying, you're going to be a criminal, not just like violating immigration laws, but a criminal just like anybody else who has violated a law. And so you're going to jail, not just immigration detention, you're going to county jail. Um, and so, of course, you can't go to county jail with your kids. So we're taking your kids from you. And that's how the kids ended up um, being separated. And, and we know that that was like, we know from things that have been stated that that was very deliberate to try to deter people from arriving. So then, you know, so there's all these different, there's, and there's a lot of other things that have happened. But about a year and a half ago, when um, migrant protection protocol or what would it's commonly known as remain in Mexico went into effect. That basically said, okay, you're no longer able to pursue your court hearings in the US. Now you're gonna to have to pursue those court hearings while you're staying in border towns in Mexico and you can come across whenever you have a court hearing. And so while, when everyone was being released into the US to pursue their court hearings, the churches in El Paso really responded and provided temporary shelter and food and showers for people on their journey. And so there was you know, thousands that, that passed through, but the, and churches really opened their doors. Um, there was a group of 30 churches that we worked with um, who opened their doors and it was across the spectrum, which was an amazing thing. There was some, some real, like some uh, unusual suspects in terms of what churches opened their doors, including very conservative churches who were completely against, I mean, were very on board with sort of right-wing ideology, but when they encountered, when they encountered an asylum seeker and saw them and saw their eyes, they're like, this is what Jesus would want us to do. Jesus would want us to help this, this, this family. And so they did, even though there was like this inner conflict. Now by no means did the majority, but that was amazing to see some of the churches do that. So now with, with Remain in Mexico for the last year and a half, now the burden is all on, on Ciudad Juarez on our sister city across the way. And so there are thousands at times, tens of thousands of asylum seekers who are stuck in Juarez and not just passing through for a day or two, but they're there for a year, two years. And so there's, there's a network now of about 20 groups, mostly churches again, which is pretty amazing, that have opened their doors. And now there's, they've basically been transformed into shelters. Yeah, yeah I mean, <clears throat> it feels very overwhelming, you know, to to read the stories, <clears throat> child separation, kind of what's happening and all the rhetoric, very inflamed, um, casting um, people trying to enter our country as, e as evil outsiders. Um, do you, before we open it up for questions and, I, and there'll probably be a lot of questions that people wanna ask you, how do, we, how do we find hope and how do we take advantage of this moment of like chaos and disruption? Um, to, to push for a world that is more equitable and just and more sustainable with, the, with a different kind of understanding, you know, going forward about the role the church can play and, and what that looks like systemically and individually. Um, this is a broad, 
this is a broad question, but like, where are you finding hope? And what, what is your idea of how we can kind of understand this moment as an opportunity and not just feel like the heaviness of it and feel immobilized? Yeah, I'll mention one, one thing just about hope so I don't forget. And this was uh, um, a couple years ago, I was with a group um, visiting Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala and trying to meet with um, grassroots leaders and all across the spectrum from, from churches to youth organizations to educational institutions, political um, people. So meeting with a whole lot of people and hearing just trying to understand the root causes. Why? What's the situation in Central America? Why so many people are, are leaving? and feeling forced to flee. And we just heard story after story after story, like terrible stories. And sometimes, I remember this one time, I don't even remember what had been shared, but it was just like this crazy heaviness and like trying to understand how on earth do you have hope in the middle of this? And that question was posed to this young lady and she, her eyes sort of lit up and sparkled. And she's like, what do you mean? She's like, when things are hopeless, that's when hope matters. That's when you have hope. <laughs> and I know, I mean, I've still been mulling over that. Um, it's just like, you know, we don't have hope because things look good necessarily. <laughs> we have hope even in the midst of when things look terrible, that's when hope matters the most. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, uh, this, her, their situation there is, I mean, the reality on the ground for so many people is, is terrifying, but, uh, I have hope in the sense that this, like what the expression we are seeing right now, maybe, you know, whatever, the last century, let's say in, uh, let's say, you know, mainstream white evangelical church is not, is not necessarily what has happened through history at all times. And so um, I think of the, the desert fathers and mothers in Egypt, if you're familiar with them, desert mystics, um, that was in the third century. And so you had a couple hundred years of when following Jesus was not a privileged thing, right? You had to really care because you're probably going to die if you follow Jesus. You're persecuted. You're discriminated against. It is not a good thing for you to follow Jesus. And that's the Jesus we follow. Um, and that was sort of, that's what Jesus told people to expect his followers. He didn't say expect to have a whole lot of money and sit in positions of power and make decisions in line with, with what I'm telling you. He said, no, people are gonna hate you for what it actually means to follow me. Um, and it's disrupting sort of some of the systems of power. And so there's, there was different reactions to when Constantine became, you know, became a Christian. And that's, I really, I think when Christianity sort of got termed, um, you know, in Europe or in, in Constantine, Turkey, Turk, what's Turkey now, um, the church decided to align with empire to align with the powers to save themselves, right? In Egypt, what, what this group thought was like, we can't, we don't even know what it's actually, what it means to follow Jesus anymore because it's so conflated with the empire, with the powers that be. And um, we, can, we don't even, we, we can't, we're, such, we're so in the middle of it, we can't see clearly. Therefore, we must run to the desert and sit there for 30 years <laughs> before our mind is clear um, to be able to hear from God, because there's just no way for us to clearly see from God when we're in the center of power and influence, which now our, our faith is. So um, I love going back and, and hearing and listening and learning um, from that, that stream where that didn't align itself with empire that said, actually, when we align ourselves 
with the powers that be, we're in the deepest trouble. We're no longer following Jesus, most likely. And so in a sense, a lot of my hope would come just saying like, you know, I experience and feel and see Jesus the most strongly outside of those centers. I mean, like in like, like those uh, asylum seekers who are hitting the border, almost everyone, it's crazy, will express how God has been with them in the midst of their suffering and in their journey. Uh, more so than, I mean, we think, I'll even have sometimes groups saying, hey, well, are you sharing Jesus with those that are, that are coming? And I'm like, you know what, come visit, and they're going to share Jesus with you. Um, because, and I mean, that's not, I mean, we will, you know, oftentimes a group will be like, you know, they'll hear a story and be just, you know, overwhelmed and be like, can we pray for you, please? And they'll be like, of course, please pray for us. And a group will, a group of people visiting the border will, will put their hands on a group and be praying for them. And then, and then, uh, the asylum seeker will, will like, you know, look up and be like, can I pray for you now? And then they'll pray in like this unbelievable spirit, obviously with this deep, deep, deep knowledge of God and faith that puts me to shame, um, brings me to tears. Um, and so I don't think, I mean, I think our hope, yes, we have, we, we see all this craziness happening in our, you know, we could see this craziness happening in our country, but I don't think that, me, you know, God is present in that craziness. Um, and usually in the in unlikely circumstances on, on the edges and on the margins and in the outside. And that's where we're going to encounter God. And that's hopefully where, you know, then, then maybe we're actually at the center of God's heart and can actually think clearly to like move forward. Awesome. Sammy, you, you actually, you're a father and you're living in the desert. So you actually are a desert father. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to have some questions percolating, but I, I'd love to, to pivot and make sure that like the thoughts and reflections and the questions that people have who are on this call have a chance to also, while we have you, um, ask their questions. So I'll throw it over to Vince. I have not been monitoring the chat, so. Yeah, I have, uh, I can, I can pose a question based on some of the comments so far. Um, and I, it really jumps off of the, this idea of the, the desert fathers and mothers who, uh, who separated themselves from all of the privilege and the power that was being tied up with faith in order to, to, to say more. And it really, it really feels tied to that idea of like these people that you've experienced who know suffering, who know what it's like to be an outsider, have a much more intuitive knowledge of Jesus and of God and, you know, and, and able to share that, you know, then, then somebody like me, for example, one of the more privileged people in this community in, in Brownline Church, I'm wondering if you can like, Sammy, if you could speak to maybe like we, we have, we have some people for whom uh, they do experience outsiderness societally in our community. And so they would have a more intuitive knowledge of Jesus in this sense. And then we have some people like me who have, like, I have to be like, I have to do what the desert fathers and mothers did. I have to do some version of like separating myself to clear my head so I can more properly engage. Can you speak to those two groups of people for a little bit? Like, what would you recommend to us? Um, I think as a, as a group in a privileged situation, it's very, very easy um, to stay in that situation. Why do you want to give up comfort? Why do you want to give up a system that works for you? Why do you want to give up, 
especially if everything over centuries has been designed so that it works well for me as a European descendant male in the US, right? Christian. Um, so, and I think that's part of why Jesus says it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Because Jesus is telling us that's exactly what you have to do. Like it's not, a, you, you, you have to be willing to give up or you're not really following me. Um, and so that sort of sacrificial, um, that, that sacrificial tendency is built in. I mean, it's baked into the beginnings of followers of Jesus. And so for those who are in privilege, it's like, it has to be a decision to step outside of our boundaries of comfort um, and, uh, and uh, prosper and listen, because we tend to think that we want to just jump in and talk, but I mean, we got to go and, and actually ask people and listen and listen and be humble and, and read like we can read. Um, we can try to find, uh, you know, narratives of history that aren't designed and written by and for the majority, um, no matter where we are. Um, and so there's, I think there's a whole lot of ways of stepping outside those walls. I think like, even when I think about the U S and like build the wall, right. Build the wall, build the wall, build the wall. So it's like, we want to create this fortress with a massive wall around it and, and prosperity and people happy inside. And then sort of people dying at the outside as they're trying to like enter. Um, but we, but, but in order to even be thinking that way, we already have, you know, are in a space internally where we're willing to do that because we have our own internal walls of who's in and who's out. Um, and by design, especially for the, I mean, European descendant uh, majority, you know, that, you know, has become known as white over the years. Um, and, and the culture that has developed around that, it's, it's really difficult to do that if you're, it, or impossible, I would say, just staying in the middle of, of that and not going to the outside and trying to learn in a posture of humility. And so um, I think being exposed to, to hardship and pain and just anything out like on the fringes, on the margins uh, or with outsiders um, in some cases that, that can be maybe even like, again, like that's how, I mean, again, maybe that's how, that's an avenue for our salvation, literally like this is how you shall be saved to get, you know, um, get outside of that. Um, I think I, I think for maybe communities who, who have been marginalized, I would want to defer to, to group, to groups. I mean, like within the U S for example, I mean, African Americans or other groups that, I mean, indigenous communities, immigrants, um, anybody who hasn't been able to fit into that majority to really like go and listen and sit in to see what would be the best ways to involve. And there's so many resources out there right now and voices that are speaking to that. Um, but in a sense, I mean, I've already said it, but in a sense, like you said, I think Val, it's more intuitive, I think, in those communities to actually be at a space of understanding who Jesus was and what Jesus is speaking to and what so much of the Bible is speaking to. I don't know if that really answered your question, Vince, but I know there's a lot more. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hope I didn't get on a tangent. Uh, no, that's awesome. That is awesome. We're so appreciative of you just kind of uh, sitting with us and kind of entering into, um, you know, our our engagement with this issue. Where again, we're our proximity is a lot farther uh, than you are. Um, but yeah, we're we're uh, we're amazingly grateful. We uh, because of time, we have to start to wind down. I wonder, um, Sammy and also Val as well, if I can give you guys just 
free reign to pray over Brownline Church for a moment. And um, Sammy, why don't we start with you? And then Val, if there's anything you, you wish to pray over us, I'd love for that as well. Lord God, we thank you that, that you are a God who identifies with those who suffer as you suffered. We thank you for your comfort and for your peace. Lord, I pray for all of us, and I pray for the Brownline Church, Lord, just in, 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 a, in, a, in a sort of a journey of discovery of what truly following you means in a, in a time, in this, in this setting, in this country, um, in a place where sometimes it's, we seem blinded by everything we're seeing and hearing from the powers that be, whether it's within the church or um, within politics or whatever it is. Um, uh, we just pray that, you would, that we would seek opportunities to cultivate um, your presence, Lord, where you can, you can meet us, where we can hear from you, moments of silence. Um, we pray that, I pray that uh, everyone within the, the Brown Line community would, would be moved to um, befriend um, and meet with someone who is different than themselves, whatever that, that means, um, especially if it's someone who maybe is in a more vulnerable position and truly develop a friendship um, to understand where people are coming from. I pray for that in my life as well, Lord. And we just pray um, for, for your hope. We pray for your hope and knowing that you are present with those who hurt and those who are vulnerable and those who are on the outside. And um, we pray that we would be a people that, that um, align with that heart, Lord. Um, when we ourselves are outsiders or if we are in a position where we can be welcoming those who are outsiders. Um, and Lord, yes, I just, I just, I pray for your hope in the midst of what seems like despair, but also just for your creativity um, and your compassion in our lives and your, your, uh, um, I just want to say that, that you, that you love us even despite who we are and despite our brokenness and that we do not have to be perfect to be loved, that you love us in the midst of these things that we are still trying to grapple with and work through. Amen. And Lord, we also just thank you for the opportunity that we have even in this next week as the, the dissonance of what, what is happening um, pushes us in to, to know you more and to be committed together as a community to understand um, your heartbeat and how to follow you in this time. Um, thank you, Lord, for Sammy and his family. And we pray special blessing over him and all of the people who are in border towns and cities uh, wrestling with the systemic problems, Lord, that we have um, created and continue to live in. Pray that you would Give us opportunities to continue to be shaped by these stories and what you're doing that we may know, might know you more. We pray in your name. Amen.